in Grand Forks, it's a place where everybody knows everybody already. And so to come in here as this new person, I had to start from scratch. And at first I was like, okay, Nick, introduce me to all of your friends that you've kept in touch with. And he said, here are my parents. (laughs) Those were like his best friends. (laughs) Very sweet. Not the best drinking buddies though. (laughs) From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, we have the star of Food Network's Girl Meets Farm, Molly Yeh. Molly is a New York Times bestselling cookbook author who's been nominated for both an Emmy and James Beard Award. First, Molly will share an essay from her new book, Home is Where the Eggs Are. Then we'll chat about her Chinese-Jewish heritage, living on a farm in Minnesota, the babka that didn't quite make it, and so much more. Here's Molly. Home is where the matzo brai and face moisturizer are. In 2014, my husband Nick and I broke our lease in downtown Grand Forks to take over the house on his family's farm after his grandma moved out. It had yellow linoleum floors, pink carpet in the bathroom, heavy curtains on all the windows, and a gigantic refrigerator in a color called almond anchoring the kitchen. Hanging dark cabinets made the space feel cave-like, and it wasn't long before we tore up the carpet in the bedroom to expose the plywood flooring, which aligned with our vision of some budget industrial Brooklyn aesthetic that we thought we were going for. The basement stored dozens of Nick's grandma's bowling trophies and rope knot displays from his uncle's Boy Scout troop. An orange couch from the 70s sat next to a pool table that hadn't been used in decades. We did what we could with the kitchen to make me feel less like a turtle in its shell during my long work days. Per the Pinterest trends of the time, we replaced the cabinets with open shelves, counters with butcher blocks, and a big almond refrigerator with the cutest green smeg. Except for the smeg, it was all Ikea, all DIY, and all temporary until we could build a new house right on the farmstead. I couldn't wait to tear this house down to build a new one. I wanted a dream house and a dream spot further away from the road with more access to the yard. A big open kitchen with storage space for days. I draw doodles of colonials and new kitchens. And every six months, we discover a new location on the farm where our house would sit perfectly. The kitchen would have tahini on tap and a dispenser for sprinkles. Rock walls, slides, a greenhouse in the middle. For nearly four years, we moved from one idea to another, drawing up houses upon houses. The ideas were simply all over the place. We considered picking up and moving the original house, selling it, turning it on its head. Every single possibility got its own dinner time discussion. Until one day, when our firstborn Bernie was nine months old, I realized what Nick was patiently waiting for me to figure out. We had to stay in this house. We couldn't let it go. Suddenly, it wasn't just weird pink bathroom carpet. It was carpet that kept Bernice Kepi from getting balked as we got her ready for her first ever baths. And it wasn't just a small, dark living room. It was a cozy cocoon where we built forts and played airplane and had macaroni salad picnics. It wasn't just a house. It was a home, and we'd made our mark. So we reworked our plans into an addition to the original farmhouse that would give us a place to work and live. The original kitchen would remain untouched and become a designated filming and work kitchen for me as we glued on a second kitchen right next to it for Bernie's after-school snacks, family dinners, and everything else we'd eat together. 
I was so relieved at how right this decision felt and really excited to incorporate the old mid-century design with the new. I was also relieved that we wouldn't have to move at all. We could just scoot to the side while the construction crew built the addition. Or so I thought, lol. Apparently construction doesn't work that way. You can't just suck in your belly and move your chair in to let a construction truck squeeze behind you. We had to move three times, three. I live in four different places. Our original house, a temporary house, Nick's parents' house, and various sections of our new expanded house. Four different kitchens I cooked in while I wrote this book, you guys. So believe me when I say to get an oven thermometer. It was an adventure with a good dose of emotion, plus some relentlessness because COVID had just hit and we couldn't bribe our friends to help us pack or wind down at the local pizza parlor after our tough moving days. That feeling of packing away our Seder plate for long-term storage, thinking we'd be back in our house well before Passover, and then discovering that we couldn't fully unpack until the middle of summer, well, which became the following winter, was something. Having to move cribs back and forth, pack up the weird miscellaneous boxes with handfuls of broken crayons and magazine articles that were never read, and having to question whether I'd need my 10-inch springform pan over the next three months, and fearing that I'd find a good cheesecake recipe as soon as I sealed that box, it all happened three times over a year. But of course, it was all so very worth it. It also helped us reevaluate what we really need in order to feel like we're home in any given place. Spoiler alert, it isn't my clogs, and it isn't even my sprinkle collection. A house becomes a home, I learned, when I can cook in it and giggle a bunch with the people that I love. It doesn't need to be complicated, and the kitchen doesn't need to be fancy or extensive. Home, I found, is just a big batch of shallot-heavy matzo brai. Nick reading his newspaper at the table with some coffee, Bernie cuddling her bunny, and a cat with three, with some allergy meds, of course. My face moisturizer and a Roku stick also help. Hi, Molly. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for sharing that essay from your book with us. Of course. It's my honor. This idea of a dream home is something that so many people, I think, have. You know, they have this really specific picture in their mind. And so I love how you kind of had to rethink that a little bit along the way. Right. It's not just a Pinterest photo. It's not just a photo from a magazine. It's the smells, it's the energy, it's the memories, it's what the walls would say if they could talk. And the concept to me was so new coming from living in the suburbs of Chicago and not really having this concept of a generational home and then moving to a fifth generation farm completely flipped this idea of home on its head. And now it's so different, but it's so much more real and special because of that. Yeah. One thing you said that I need to ask you about right away is the smells. So what are some of the smells for you that make it a home? Chicken soup simmering on the stove on a Sunday afternoon. It's almost like a candle is flickering. There is that beautiful pot of a chicken with lots of fresh herbs and carrots and celery and an onion. And I love it when it's kind of just a little bit foggy because every time you look at it, the fog shoots up into your face and you get chicken soup facial. Like that's just a dream vision for me. And so that's the smell of home. The other thing that I really loved when you were talking about moving into like a fifth generation home, I think that that's such an incredible concept because. I grew up 
in New York and we had a few different places that we lived and my parents moved to other places. And I don't even know if I have like a box in my parents' place right now. So the idea of something with so much history is pretty inspiring to me. So how did you feel about coming into that and keeping that going now? It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff. (laughs) There was so much stuff in the basement that I had to treat very carefully. There were all of these jackets, too, that smelled like they had been in a closet in the basement for decades. And I was like, okay, can we donate them? And Nick was like, no, absolutely not. This is like the jacket that my grandpa wore every single day on the farm. Luckily, Nick and I can both kind of reason with each other about making space for some things, but holding on to other things. But there were definitely certain things where he was like, you know, this was where my grandma kept the jelly bean jar around Easter. Like, we have to have a jar here and it has to have jelly beans. And so I learned all of these great stories. And it also kind of makes you expand the timeline in your brain too, because we're talking about like, you know, Nick's great, great, great grandpa Berndt who came over from Norway. And that kind of makes you think of, okay, like, what is this going to be like for our great, great, great grandchildren? Because hopefully they're still living here. And so when we built the house, we were like, you know, sorry to future generations who don't want to film a TV show (laughs) in the original kitchen. And now they're left with three kitchens, but hopefully that space can turn into something useful for future generations. I think that's beautiful. At the same time that you're thinking about the past, you're also thinking about the future. And that's what this house does for your family in this moment. I read this quote recently that having kids is you're living simultaneously in the past, in the future and in the moment And so we realized we had to expand the house as soon as we had Bernie. And it kind of echoes those sentiments. You, as you mentioned, grew up outside of Chicago and you spent time in New York. And so I can imagine in general that it was a huge change moving to you're on the Minnesota, North Dakota border, right? You're exactly right. It was sold to me as like Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls but really, really cold. And that is exactly what it is. So there's a lot of hunkering down. There's a lot of soup. There is a teensy-weensy Jewish population. We have one little synagogue that's been around for quite some time, actually. But we don't have any delis. We don't have a Zabar's. We don't have (laughs) Barney Greengrass. So if I wanted bagels or matzo ball soup or any of my true comfort foods, I had to make them from scratch. And same thing with keeping a lot of my family traditions alive. That was all something that I would spearhead. I really want to understand how you felt going from some of the places that are populated with so many Jews to going to a place with so few. I think we looked up a statistic that like North Dakota has the smallest Jewish population in all of the U.S. I immediately found such great value in online Jewish communities, like unorthodox, schmaltzy, like at being able to get your newsletter every week. Like that is something that's really special to me. But just like being able to connect with Jews in other ways became very valuable and very special. And then learning to, you know, create these traditions in my home myself, because there's not a huge population to celebrate with here. So it was a shift. And 
The bigger shift was the process of getting to know people. I think in New York, people are very open. You can learn someone's life story within five minutes of getting to know them. And people are always meeting new people, right? And in Grand Forks, it's a place where everybody knows everybody already. And so to come in here as this new person, I had to start from scratch. And at first I was like, okay, Nick, introduce me to all of your friends that you've kept in touch with. And he said, here are my parents. (laughs) Those were like his best friends. (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. Very sweet. Not the best drinking buddies though. Mm, I can see that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, getting to know the town, figuring out what to talk about with people was a challenge. Ultimately, it was the food and getting to learn about regional recipes and regional cuisine and family recipes that people around here have and getting people to talk about their recipes was the catalyst to getting to know people and to making friends. Do you remember the first thing that you made with someone in your new town? So one of the first things that I tried to make was lefsa, which is this Norwegian potato flatbread. It kind of looks like a tortilla, but it has riced potato in the dough. And so it's very tender. It will fall apart if you don't use enough flour. And the first recipe I got was from my husband's great aunt Ethel. And she gave me this stained note card that had been passed down. And it was one of those things where it was like, here are the rough measurements. And then just mix it up and grill it. The first time I made it, I tried to do it on my own. I tried to do it with a potato ricer. I just mashed the potatoes and that visual cue of like what the dough should look like wasn't there. And so I did call Ethel in tears and I said, what on earth am I doing wrong? And she said, oh, it sounds like it just needs more flour. So I added more flour and then eventually it kind of worked. And then I tried making lefse with sweet potatoes and that got like a major side eye eyebrow raise from Miss <laughs> Ethel. Did she taste it though? Um, no, she just said, that's different. <laughs> oh, And then I recoiled. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like introducing some foods both from your Chinese side and your Jewish side? My favorite part was hearing some new words pronounced for the first time. Like I heard my mother-in-law pronounce shakshuka for the first time. (laughs) And it was so joyous and wonderful and delightful. (laughs) That and sriracha and hala. I would say that like everybody here is so open and welcoming of new food, as long as it's not too spicy. That might be hard from maybe the Chinese side of cooking that you do because that could be a little spicy (laughs) (laughs) but even I am like softened now like just last night I only had the extra spicy chili crisp in my fridge and there were like tears streaming down my face (laughs) (laughs) oh no I can handle like a midwest 10 is probably a texas 2 so it's just different heat zones time zones (laughs) yeah totally well It seems like you and Nick have a really beautiful and special relationship. I really loved in a headnote for the baked eggs recipe, how you said you and Nick do Shabbat light sometimes on Saturdays. Would you mind just telling us a little more about that and how you kind of are passing some of these traditions in your own way onto your girls? So, okay, Nick was working at the farm, so he was on his own schedule and 
Farmers during the season, they work a crazy amount of hours, you know, no sleep, seven days a week. You're really just at the mercy of the weather. So if it's good weather, you are going all day, every day, sun up to sundown. The sun doesn't go down here until like 10, maybe 1030 at night during the summer. And so he was away for these crazy hours. I was just like, okay, I'll just work all day, every single day too, because why not? I have nothing else to do. I have no friends yet. I have no kids. I'm just going to work on my blog. And honestly, it was the time for that. It was the time to put in those hours to truly hustle and to invest in what I truly wanted to be doing, which was recipe development, photography, blogging, social media. And it was great. At the same time, like I was faced with very real burnout regularly because I wasn't taking the time for myself. And then around the same time, I made this wonderful friend in Israel named Sonia, who lives in California, but like we were traveling together there and she was talking about how she does Shabbat. And she was telling me how like she doesn't do, you know, full on Shabbat, but like Maybe on a Saturday, she'll decide not to drive and she'll only walk places. Or maybe she'll take a Saturday off from going on social media or going on her phone. All with the intention of connecting with people, connecting back to her family and herself and just slowing down. And I thought that that was such a wonderful concept. And so after that trip, I came back and I just told myself, okay, I think I'm going to stop going on my phone on Saturdays. And I tried it and immediately I felt more creatively energized, more connected with the people that I wanted to be connected with and really kind of evaluating what's important. Because when you take even 24 hours off of social media, you realize that like, I don't need to be comparing myself or feeling inadequate or feeling FOMO. And that's when I had all my best recipe ideas too. So that is like the single most important thing that has helped me feel balanced and prevented burnout. Oh, you're really selling it. I will say it's a challenge. And there are some weeks where I don't do it and I ignore the thing on my phone that says, don't go on Instagram. (laughs) But then I just don't feel good after. What I love about that is, and what instantly struck me when I read that in the book was just about you doing it on your own terms. And I think that that's such an important message for people. Yeah, baby steps. It just a little bit can go such a long way. And you know, with having Shabbat dinner too. That's something I would love to start doing once I can cook without having to like hold a child in my arms at all times. But like, it doesn't have to be a whole big homemade feast. But I think if you can spend time with your family and put away the phones, even if you're eating takeout, I think that's special. (laughs) Definitely. So let's say you're finally got it together and you're hosting a Shabbat on Friday night. (laughs) What would be your dream menu to serve? Well, it's pizza since we also do pizza Friday. (laughs) I love when those two things intersect. Yeah. So we do pizza Shabbat. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So let's talk about your new restaurant, Bernie's. In the midst of everything that you're doing and raising a family, what made you want to open a restaurant? This region. We have incredible 
incredible ingredients. We have this wealth of heritage recipes. We also have a great growing season Mm. and we have incredible grains, great produce, meat, beans, wild rice, and this beautiful culture of cuisine. You know, there aren't a lot of places around here that celebrate it. And I wanted to showcase it. I wanted to create a physical space for community gathering. And I also wanted to work with a team. And we do have just some wonderful humans in this town that I love seeing every day. I also selfishly like wanted a place to get crusty sourdough every day, which we didn't have a bread bakery before. So now we have one. Well, what were some of the biggest challenges? I used to work in restaurants and hospitalities and it can be amazing, but it can also be really hard. I mean, it's so many things to think about. It's not just the recipe development and making the food. It's making sure that your health code is up to par. It's making sure that you're getting your licenses and your paperwork filled out and you're figuring out tips for all of the servers and sourcing ingredients actually is challenging to make sure that we are able to get these great local ingredients from local farmers. You're having to learn about food laws and about business laws and tax laws and all of these things that happen behind the scenes. I took a look at your menu and I saw you have like latkes, challah, mandel bread, smoked fish, obviously like Jewish things. And was there ever a time where you had to really introduce these foods to people and it wasn't something that they were familiar with? So we tried to do a babka at the beginning. And that means that one day soon we'll bring it back. But no, you know, mandel bread, people ask about it all the time. And so we have our script ready of how to explain it. But people have really loved it. You know, it's great to me to kind of realize there are, are so many actually similarities between a lot of the Scandinavian influenced cuisine here and Jewish cuisine. I mean, smoked fish is such a central part to both cuisines. And so we have this awesome white fish toast that uses local white fish and that has a lot of familiar flavors to people around here, but it's also a staple. There are a lot of overlapping things that I feel like people have just kind of globbed on and really liked. Well, I very much look forward to one day visiting Bernie's and coming to Shabbat at your place. You're always welcome. Molly, thank you so much for being with us and sharing so openly and honestly and also for writing this amazing book. Thank you. This was so much fun. That was Molly Yeh. You can find her family story and potato hollow recipe on jewishfoodsociety.org. And if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review Schmaltzy on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Schmaltzy is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Sheffi and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Special thanks to the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>